This is Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. I'm Bill Pollack. Could gut bacteria signal that you have Alzheimer's disease? We'll talk to a professor at WashU. Women are often the caregivers for aging or ailing relatives. We'll hear from a professor at Missouri State talking about the impact that has on women's lives. A family from Wentzville that turns antiques into lamps. I mean, we're talking everything from appliances to musical instruments. Free meals are being free meals are being served to children at about 1,000 locations across Missouri this summer. Elisa Nelson talks to Tanya Harvey, Missouri's summer food service program manager, about what you need to know. The program is offered throughout the state through what we call sponsors. So sponsors are nonprofit organizations that um, that request to serve the meals through the summer and then are reimbursed um, based on a rate set by USDA. And the sites are, in general, open to anyone in the area. It is an area-eligible site, which means that a site can be area-eligible if at least 50% or more of the children in the area qualify for free or reduced-price meals through USDA. The sites are available all throughout Missouri, and anyone in those areas can come. So you don't have to prove that you live there. You just walk up, and um, if you are a child from 0 to 18, you can get a free meal. What about um, those who might have a disability? So people with disabilities um, to qualify to receive the meals have to still be enrolled in some sort of educational program. And in Missouri, generally, that is um, children up to 21 that have a disability could receive a free meal. I'm curious, are there any areas that are maybe lacking sites? So there are some areas in Missouri that do not qualify for a free site. If the site doesn't qualify for um what we call open to the public, a sponsor can still request to have that site either as a closed enrolled site where they collect income eligibility forms from the participants, or sometimes camps also will collect income eligibility forms to qualify so that they can receive the free meals for the children that they are serving that summer. So what kind of meals are served? Are we talking breakfast, lunch, dinner, all of the above? Um, each open site is approved um, one uh, up to two meals, so a breakfast and a lunch, or um, a lunch and a snack, or a breakfast and a supper. Um, USDA just has one stipulation that it can't be a supper and a lunch both together, so that is their only rule with that. Um, so two free meals a day per child, and if you're a camp, sometimes it can go up to three if it's a residential camp, but that's that's strictly for camps. Now, do they have to eat it there or do are they doing the to-go thing too? I'm just curious if you can get multiple meals at one time um, or uh, multiple meals for multiple days. At the moment, the majority of our sites are um, congregate sites where they have to eat on site. We do have a, a regulation from USDA that allows rural non-congregate meals. We only have about... Um, six of those sites throughout the state of Missouri at the moment. Uh, and if you look on our website, we have a map and they are called rural non-congregate meals. Um, so they'll have their name and it'll say non-congregate after it. If, if you um, are in that area, you can kind of find those easier. And those are allowed multiple meals at once. But um, the rules re regarding those to allow the non-congregate is that they have to be in a, in a area that has been established as rural. 
are you trying to get more? Is that why we only have six? Um, so it's open to any sponsor, but it is kind of restricted just based off of what USDA has put into place that um, it it can't be around, uh, you know, if, if the if the location can serve as um, congregate, it's supposed to try to do that instead because USDA wants to keep that congregate rule in place as best as possible just because it is good for kids to get together. Free meals are being served to children at about 1,000 locations across Missouri this summer. Tanya Harvey, who is the Summer Food Service Program Manager for Missouri, joined Show Me Today to talk about the program. Is it also kind of a, a better checks and balances system? Is that part of the reason behind the USDA's restrictions? I really don't know. I mean, that's how the regulation was written at the moment is to, okay, not lied. There are 13 non-congregate sites. Okay. Um, so we do have that going for us, 13. And um, so I think it's kind of USDA's way of tipping our toe into the non-congregate change possibly that might come to the future. I know that COVID showed us that it can be done, but there were some issues regarding ensuring that integrity was being met. So they're starting in an area where we know children have a harder time getting to our sites, and that would be the rural areas. So that is part of the reason for just rural areas at the moment to kind of see how it goes, see what issues we find, um, see how each state handles these changes. Do you know, like, roughly how many um, uh, summer meals are served to kids in a given year? So in 2022, we served over 3 million meals during the summer. And in 2022, there were no non-congregate sites. So those were all in-person sit-down sites. Is that a pretty typical year, Tanya? Um, actually, it was it was a little low. Last year, we had... Um, a lot of our schools, so there are two programs that a summer food program school can choose to offer. So they can choose to go through the um, DESI program, which is another USDA program called the Seamless Summer Option, or they can choose to do the uh, Summer Food Service Program. They would normally choose the Summer Food Service Program because the rates were are usually a little higher, but there was a waiver last year to change, to allow the, the rates for summer food and seamless summer to be the same. So a lot of the schools stayed with, stayed with the seamless summer DESI option because they didn't have to switch programs then because it's what they use during the whole school year. And um, so it is a little less than what we would normally serve. How long are these meals served this summer? Um, so each site chooses their own begin and end date. Um, end date has to be at least when school starts. All right. So give our Show Me Today audience uh, more information about where they can find out where the the nearest food, summer food sites are to them and what meals are being served and where and so on and so forth. Um, so our, our website is truthfully... To, to find our sites, I usually just Google SFSP Missouri, and once you do that, ours should pop up as the first thing. So you would click on Summer Food Program Missouri, and once you're on our site, there are several bullets, and one of them in particular says, find an SFSP site near you, and that will be our map that will pop up. 
If you want to hear more, subscribe to Show Me Today on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. Show Me Today. Here's Heather with the weather. Well, it's beautiful out there, sunny and 75, almost a little chilly in the shade. Now, let's get a read on the inside of your car. It is hot. You've only been parked a short time, and it's already 99 degrees in there. Let's not leave children in the back seat while running errands. It only takes a few minutes for their body temperatures to rise, and that could be fatal. Cars get hot fast and can be deadly. Never leave a child in a car. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council. Put a frog in boiling water and it'll jump right out. But put a frog in cool water and slowly heat it up, that frog will boil. As veterans, we tell ourselves the lie that we can handle anything. We let the water boil. You are not a frog. If you or a veteran you know needs support, don't wait. Reach out. Find resources at va.gov reach. That's va.gov reach. Brought to you by the United States Department of Veterans Affairs and the Ad Council. Calling all Korean War veterans. Join us on July 27, 2023 at the Missouri State Capitol at 10 a.m. in the first floor rotunda for the 70th anniversary Korean War Veterans Armistice Day event. This tribute is dedicated to your incredible bravery and sacrifice in protecting our freedom and democracy. The event features a pinning ceremony and resource fair to honor and recognize your service. Don't miss this special moment in history. Register online at veteranbenefits.mo.gov to join us. Some people won't give you the real talk on drugs, but it's time we know the facts. Fentanyl is killing people. It's a powerful opioid, often made illegally and commonly mixed with illicit drugs. It can even be pressed into counterfeit pills that resemble prescription medications. Just two milligrams, about the size of a few grains of sand, can potentially be lethal. This isn't an ad to scare you, but it is an ad to make you think twice. Get the facts. Go to realdealonfentanyl.com. This message is brought to you by the Ad Council. Do you worry about how much someone drinks? Do you feel angry or depressed most of the time? Do you feel neglected or unloved? Do you feel that if the drinker loved you, she or he would stop drinking? If you answered yes to any of these questions, you are not alone. Not everyone trapped by alcohol is an alcoholic. Families and friends are suffering too. Al-Anon and Alateen can help. Call 1-866-200-0223 or visit alanon.org slash help. The United States Deputy Sheriff's Association is a national nonprofit and the largest non-governmental provider of services to law enforcement. The USDSA assists city, county, state, and federal agencies with free safety equipment donations and officer survival training along with cash donations to families of law enforcement officers who perish in the line of duty, college scholarships for the children of law enforcement, a citizen awareness program, and more. For more information on the USDSA and how you can help, visit usdeputy.org. Back on Show Me Today, Wash U in St. Louis is researching if gut bacteria could be an early indicator of Alzheimer's disease. Anthony Morbeth chats with Professor Gautam Dantas. The genesis of this project was just a quick conversation uh, at a kid's soccer game where I was chatting with a friend of mine, uh, uh, Professor Bo Ansis, who's a neuroscientist uh, here at Wash U who studies Alzheimer's disease and was telling about these exciting recent developments in the AD field uh, where uh, uh, they were able to, to show that they can uh, detect the biomarkers of AD, so these particular proteins in the blood and uh, um, 
uh, particular signals in the brain uh, in uh, uh, individuals 10 or 15 years before you actually see AD symptoms, right? So as exactly as you said in your introduction, Alzheimer's disease is one of those sort of disease scourges that we would love to be able to do something about in terms of both diagnosis and treatment. And so the reason this is an exciting finding in terms of preclinical AD that Dr. Ansis was uh, explaining to me is because it allows you to potentially start working on this uh, you know, many, many years in advance. The problem, though, is that many of those tests are pretty expensive and they're pretty invasive, right? They require spinal taps and they require uh, expensive imaging. Uh, and so you want to be very judicious about when you want to do this. And so this is where uh, our lab came in, where uh, this conversation progressed to talk about the gut microbiome. Uh, so this is the group of bugs that live uh, in all of us. Uh, they're an important organ. And there's been a lot of work over the last decade or so, so to show that the uh, the gut microbiome has a lot of uh, uh, impacts on human health and potentially uh, that there's also a connection between the gut and the brain. Uh, and so where these two things now come together is the proposal that maybe uh, that the bugs in the gut could be uh, uh, an alternative uh, uh, diagnostic biomarker for Alzheimer's disease. And so uh, that was the, that was, that's how this started, this conversation that, you know, could the bugs in the gut tell you whether things are beginning to trend towards Alzheimer's disease? And then the study that you are, are talking about, uh, essentially, not that so the, the punchline was, well, that's what we were able to show was by looking at a group of about 160 uh, folks in Missouri. Um, uh, a third of them were in this preclinical Alzheimer's state. So they have all of the kind of biomarkers of Alzheimer's disease, but they're not symptomatic yet. And then we compared them to roughly about 100 healthy individuals. We could show that the bugs and guts were completely different uh, between those two groups. Uh, and that, uh, in fact, we could use the identity of that gut microbiome in those preclinical individuals to classify them uh, uh, now, in this case, potentially for further testing. So you're not necessarily trying to prevent the disease. You're trying to determine if someone has it. And are you trying to also find ways to slow its progression? Yeah, interestingly, the, the motivations are all of the above. Uh, uh, whether we can deliver on each of those uh, is to be determined. And so let me break that down, right? So what are the different things that we could do with the, the information we found so far? At the bare minimum, we would be interested in using this as a way in which to screen individuals. Uh, that is to say, now that we've got this, this, this idea, at least, that the gut microbes in a preclinical individual are different from a healthy individual, you could imagine that a new person comes along, we screen their stool, and if we find those same kind of signatures, they get advanced to the more expensive uh, and, and more invasive uh, testing for AD. So that, that's sort of point number one. It's the lowest hanging fruit, if you will, next step, but perhaps one of the most impactful. The next uh, uh, option, though, is, as you said, in terms of being able to intervene uh, and actually to maybe advance a therapeutic, that requires one more thing that is very critical for us to show, and that is to distinguish between the microbiome being just a correlate, just being similar to uh, tell us you know, whether it's uh, uh, um, you know, in the disease category or not versus causative. You know, are the bugs themselves somehow contributing to the disease? And we have new work ongoing uh, uh, to try to test that out uh, that requires 
some longitudinal sampling, so we're following those same individuals over time to see how those bugs change, uh, and also to ask what they're doing. Because if we're able to show that the bugs are actually contributing to the disease, then there's this huge opportunity to actually intervene and either suppress the bad bugs or to supplement the good bugs uh, as a way in which to actually treat Alzheimer's. But I will be very clear to say that that is still speculation. I think we're we're very comfortable with making the claim that we found the kind of biomarker evidence. Uh, the next step now is to take that biomarker evidence and see if we can actually convert that into uh, perhaps novel therapeutics. Dr. Gautam Dantas is a Conan Professor of Laboratory of Genomic Medicine at Washington University of, in St. Louis. He's joining us here on Show Me Today. We're talking about Alzheimer's disease and how your gut bacteria could be an early indicator that you may have it. And is it true that you're designing some preventative treatments? My reason in asking is because when I think of something that's actually good for your gut, one amazing example I think of is, for example, kombucha or something like that. So would that possibly be a, an easy or a simple over-the-counter or just something you could buy at the store, sort of preventative treatment, as it were? Yeah, that's a great question and something that we're excited about the prospect, but we're certainly not there yet, right? So this is kind of what I was alluding to uh, just before this, that if we're able to show with our now ongoing work that uh, the, the, the bugs that we're showing, the gut bugs that are clearly correlated with Alzheimer's disease, if we can show that they're actually causative, uh, or we can show, as you, you, you refer to, where you know the people who are healthy, who are not getting AD, if they have particularly enriched bugs, then you could imagine a future exactly as you're saying, where you could go down the route of this so-called probiotic uh, treatment, where you can try to find particular bacteria, or particular, uh, um, you know, foods that will promote those good bacteria and then use that as an over-the-counter uh, or prescribed version of, of helping with, with Alzheimer's disease. But uh, um, that's not something that we're, uh, at, we're at that stage yet. Uh, there's unfortunately no immediate, you know, we, we certainly would not advocate anyone based on our study going and changing what bugs they uh, uh, intake. But it is, it is definitely something that we're hoping to learn from the next stage of our study uh, to say, okay, we know that they're different. We know that the gut bacteria are different between the preclinical AD and the healthy people. Could we eventually manipulate them as one of the, the major next steps uh, in terms of the research in the lab? I'm curious as to your point of view. Is there a difference between gut bacteria and someone who's healthy versus someone who's not? Yeah, that's a great question. I think uh, um, the answer to that, the simple answer is yes. Uh, the more nuanced answer is uh, it depends on context. So, for instance, when you say healthy and, and not, it depends on what not means, right? So, so for someone who has, for instance, a, a, a GI infection, someone who's got diarrhea, for instance, from having uh, ingested something problematic, we've been able to very clearly show that their gut microbes are very different from the ones uh, that we find in people who are healthy. And we're even able to find that maybe susceptibility to some gut infections could be related to the status of your gut microbiome. So that is people who have more vulnerable gut microbiomes. So they have, you know, maybe the, 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 the collection of bacteria that they have in their guts are a little bit more messed up. They're more susceptible to those infections. So that in, in that sense, it's an affirmative, answer, easy answer to your first question. 
Where things get a little bit trickier is when the disease is not actually in the gut itself. And so this is the example of, you know, something like Alzheimer's disease. We don't know whether necessarily, you know, a, a, a healthy versus an unhealthy individual is, is you know, a priori necessarily going to have very different gut bacteria because the disease is not manifesting in the gut. And so that's why the studies of this type are important because that's the next step to show that actually the gut does talk to lots of other organs. Uh, and in this particular situation, at least, yeah, different gut bacteria in the people who are healthy versus the ones who are in at least uh, progressing towards disease. Dr. Gautam Dantas is a Conant Professor of Laboratory of Genomic Medicine at Washington University in St. Louis, and his study, Alzheimer's Disease and How Your Gut Bacteria Could Be an Early Indicator That You May Have It, is the subject of conversation. Doctor, is there anything else you wanted to mention in closing? Yeah, the only thing I would mention in closing is I think we're in this really unique uh, period over the next, I would say, decade or so where we're beginning to learn more and more associations between the bacteria in our gut and, and human diseases. So I would just advise uh, our fellow Missourians to keep an eye out for all of the new and exciting work that's going to be coming out of uh, not just our lab, but certainly uh, lots of labs here at WashU uh, and at other universities looking at this sort of amazing organ of the gut microbiome and all of the good that it does uh, uh, in the human body, but also ways in which we can modify it uh, to help with disease state. This is Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. Meet Ed, movie buff, animal lover, safe driver. Five years of driving an ambulance teaches you a thing or two. If people knew what I know, lives could be saved. When I see a car trying to rush past the turning bus, I get concerned. You see, when big vehicles turn right, they have to swing wide to make the turn. And that's a lesson you don't want to learn the hard way. When trucks and buses turn, let's you and I wait. It's, it's our roads. It's, it's our safety. safety. Visit www.sharetheroadsafely.gov. If you're talking, they will hear you Why are we getting killed like this? Kyle's not here. Got caught drinking beer in the park a couple of nights ago. Really? Yeah. Zero tolerance. He's out for the season. Harsh. Hey, he knew not to drink. We've made that clear to all of our kids, right? Uh, no, not really. Bill, if we don't tell them what we expect and why they shouldn't drink, how are they going to know? Talk. They hear you. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. All the talks we've had over the years, including what you've told me about not using alcohol and other drugs, they stick with me. And believe it or not, they really do make a difference, especially at times that matter most. Hey, want a drink? No thanks, I'm good. So thank you, Dad, for talking and preparing me for what's ahead. Thank you for talking. For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. Hi, it's Tori DeVito. In every family, small conversations can make a big impact, like when my dad shared his experiences as an alcoholic. Your honesty about that part of your life gave me a sense of integrity that I wanted to uphold in my own life. I wanted you to know from someone who's been in recovery more than 30 years now that hard work is what creates success, not alcohol or other drugs. I said it a lot, and I'm glad you took it to heart. Talk. They hear you. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. When it comes to vaping, the truth can get clouded. So let's make it clear. Vaping is not safe for kids, teens, or young adults. It's just not. 
because vaping can put microscopic particles into your lungs and dangerous things like metals and volatile organic compounds into your body and nicotine the same highly addictive substance found in regular cigarettes nicotine can harm a person's brain development through their mid-20s affecting learning memory attention and impulse control and priming the brain for other addictions. Vaping products also come in kid-friendly flavors that can make them appealing to youth. And many kids also use other drugs, like marijuana, in vaping devices. With appealing flavors, high nicotine levels, and lots of promotion on social media. Many kids think vaping is harmless, but it's not. So talk to your kids about the risks of vaping, because when you talk, they hear you. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. Email from school about the incident today. Scary. Tell me about it. Did you have any idea that was going on? None. I mean, you saw Derek at the game last night, too. Did you have a clue? No. But you know, teachers like me, parents, we don't always know as much as you guys do. Kids hear first about what's going on with other kids. Half the time, it's rumors. It can be hard to tell sometimes. But if you have a concern about a friend who's having trouble with alcohol, prescription drugs, bullying, violence, anything, you need to tell an adult. Mom or me, a teacher, coach, school counselor, someone you know and trust. Dad, no kid is going to tell an adult about that kind of stuff. I get it, but if we don't know, we can't help. Speaking up about a problem, that's what helping a friend is all about. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. This is Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. I'm Bill Pollack. Allow me a minute or two to read a Facebook post that was from 2019. Now, this isn't me speaking. It's not my post, but I'm I'm quoting it, and here it goes. Uh, There comes a point in every person's life when you ask yourself a question. What do I want to be remembered for? Do I want to be remembered as a man who went to work at a company and gave it all you got for that company? There's nothing wrong with that at all. This is stand-up and very respectable. Or do you want to be remembered as a man who went for it, was hell-bent on leaving a lasting legacy for your children and grandchildren? I lived the first option for the last 25 years of my working life. I'm proud to say that I will be devoting all of my time to build steampunk Sammy Designs into the company that I think it can be. With the help of my loving and supportive wife, Shannon, my wonderful and hardworking daughter, Katie, and last but certainly not least, my main man, picking partner, and chief designer son, Sammy, we plan on taking our family business to the next level. That was written in May of 2019 by Joe Udy, owner of Steampunk Sammy Designs out of Wentzville. And Joe, here we are in 2024. Uh, tw- Joe, here we are in 2023, four years later, and we're talking with you on Show Me Today. I guess things are going well. Uh, things things are going real well. Um, I've stuck to that game plan, and uh, we're still we still feel the same way about our business. Steampunk Sammy Designs. What is your business? What do you do? So we we take old um, left behind items uh, such as fire extinguishers, old fans, uh, sewing machines, and we create them into. Uh, conversation pieces uh for lighting um for your home and we just like to restore old and abandoned things and give them a new life (laughs) i'm not familiar what is or who is a steampunk (laughs) 
Well, you know, it, it, there's so many different definitions for steampunk, but I like gears and gauges and and um, turn of the century items. Uh, you know, when we really started getting cranking as a country, and uh, I, I love that stuff. And I know they don't make things like that anymore. And I don't, I want to make sure that people get to see them into the future. Joe UD is joining us from Steampunk Sammy Designs out of Wentzville. They take uh, old antiques and uh, turn them into usable lamps and lights. Uh, you got your inspiration from the TV show American Pickers? Uh, yeah, well, I sure did. I, I enjoyed, uh, you know, watching them go find these things because ever since I was a little kid, I've liked all the things that they like. And so what gave you the uh, the inspiration then from them to turn this into a business? Well, all I really wanted to do was get a, a light fixture that I could put one of those cool Edison bulbs in, um, like the old-time bulbs. Uh, and I couldn't find them at the stores. And when I did find them, they were a little bit out of my price range. So I decided I wanted to make one on my own. And one turned into almost 6,000 today. Wow. I know uh, I was at the American Picker store in Nashville, and I was actually very disappointed because they didn't have a lot of the things that they went and, and picked uh, on the show. They didn't have those things for sale. It was more like, um, you know, little tchotchke stuff, you know, like you could buy their T-shirts or coasters with American Pickers on it. I thought, this is this is just a tourist trap. It's like, you know, there were a few things you could buy, but so I could understand your frustration there. Um, all right. So, Joe, with Steampunk Sammy Designs, do you find these antiques and create the lights and then sell those items? Or do you have people bringing you items and say, hey, make a lamp out of this for me? Well, actually, so it goes both ways. I mean, we have a lot of people come to us and say, hey, this is my, you know, grandpa's or my grandma's or you know, somebody that meant something in my family's and I would like to display it as a, as a light. And, uh, we're more than happy to do that. We love to do that. But, um, part of the fun is going out as a family and, and finding these items together and, uh, creating it and, and seeing the end product. And what really makes me happy is like, well, when the people that bring me the stuff that they want me to make the look on their face, when they see that's what they want, I mean, that, that keeps me going, but it also makes me super happy when we find obscure items and create them and, and make them what we think that they should be, and everybody's happy. Joe Ud is the owner of Steampunk Sammy Designs out of Wentzville, and uh, they go around all over the country. They find antiques, and then they, they turn them into lights. Um, all right, so four years ago, you... Uh, you say that, all right, we're going to make Steampunk, uh, steampunk Sammy Designs our, our business. Um, you're going to get out of uh, working with a company that, that you were for 25 years. But how do you convince your wife, your daughter, and your son to live your dream with you? Well, I mean, I, honestly, it wasn't that hard. I mean, they know that, you know, I never miss a day at work, you know, whenever I was working and I'm um, driven. And I never really said just I'm going to stop doing this and, and do that. But when I did, everybody was like, well, um, it's about time. Yeah. They were, they so, were right there yeah, with I you. They were ready. Yeah. They're ready before us. They're for me. So it, it's scary. 
Oh, yeah, that's a huge leap, I'm sure. Uh, Steam, let me let me give your um, Facebook page out. It's Steampunk, Steampunk Sammy, S-A-M-M-I-E Designs. And you can find uh, some of the pictures. So you said that you've created 6,000 of these. What um, Pick a, a couple of them that um, would surprise listeners uh, that you've turned into lamps or things that were maybe fun for you or challenging for you and your son making. Well, I mean, so the the very first like custom piece that we made, um, a friend of mine brought me a old sewing machine and a pair of old metal skate uh, roller skates, and said that she'd like to bun them both together. Um, so uh, I didn't want them to roll off the table if I put the put them on top. But you know, with Sam and I working together and and putting at different angles and spaces. Um, we were able to blend them both together and, and my friend was very happy with it. So that was a challenging one. Um, but yeah, roller skates and, and sewing machines, that's, that's gotta be the, the craziest one. Yeah. That's quite a combo. Joe Udy <laughs> from steampunk Sammy design. All right. You and your wife went to the American picker store in Iowa to look for a lamp. How did you come to the realization that, uh, other people, want lamps and you could take these antiques and, and turn them into this. I mean, that's a real niche business. Yeah, it, it sure is. Um, I tell you, my, our friends, Mike and Tracy, when they saw the first one that I made, wanted that piece. And so I gave them that piece. And so I had to make another one. And then a few other friends came over and said, Hey, that's pretty cool. So it really started from ground zero. I mean, The more people liked them, the more it gave me confidence. And so the two years I was still working a job uh, and doing this uh, is just a a confidence builder. And then we started setting up at the flea market and selling a few here and there. And then we went to Lake St. Louis Farmer's Market, and we're still there. And we started selling some there. So it's a matter of confidence for me. And the more people wanted them, the more I wanted to make them. Yeah. you know, every time I, somebody buys one today, it just makes me as happy as it is the first one I sold. Steampunk Sammy Designs uh, turn anything into a, a lamp. Bring it to, to Joe and his family, and they'll figure out a way to get it to work. And uh, I, I noticed one, there's a, a st- uh, like a floor fan or a stand-up fan, and the blades are lights. Now, does the fan actually spin with the lights, too? I saw that on your Facebook page. <laughs> well, the, the fans actually don't spin. Um I only use broken fans, so like the mechanism on the inside doesn't spin. But, but I'm not saying it's it's impossible. So I'm still working on it. Yeah, yeah. If you dream it, then uh, Steampunk Sammy will come up with it. So, oh man, outstanding. Hey, how can people um, find your stuff? Oh, you, you can you can reach us at Facebook or uh, Instagram, Steampunk Sammy Designs. Um, you can call me at my phone number, 636-578-6529. That's, that's my cell phone numbers, and I'll answer. And uh, you can catch us at the Farmer's Market uh, in Lake St. Louis at the Meadows, 8 to noon, every Saturday, rain or shine. Joe, are you in any uh, retail stores or shops? Yes, we're in, we're in several stores throughout the, well, Missouri area. Uh, we're, we're in Boonville at Never the Same. Uh, we're in two shops in, in and O'Fallon, um, Little Arrow, and uh, Elderberry Place. And we're also in uh, Overstock in Lake St. Louis, 
and we're in Bowling Green at the Henny Penny. All right. So if you're driving and you're listening to um, Joe here and, and you miss that, uh, just download it on our podcast and just search Show Me Today on Apple and uh, you can get more details on Steampunk Sammy Designs. What a great idea. And thank you for taking time to share your dream with us and best of luck in the future. Thank you so much for having us, Bill. This is Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. AA made all the difference in my life. I noticed that most of the goals I had as a kid were slipping by. I didn't feel like the person I hoped to be. After all those years of drinking, I, I really didn't know myself. When I was out there drinking, I was always looking for the next great party to make me feel all right. With AA, I found a better way of life. And I feel good in my everyday life, even without a drink in my hand. Visit AA.org for more information and download the Meeting Guide app to find a meeting near you. Many business owners and entrepreneurs today are drowning in unsecured debt and just can't stop incurring more. Business Debtors Anonymous is a 12-step recovery program where you will receive support for doing business and living life without incurring new unsecured debt. Business Debtors Anonymous offers meetings every day where members support one another to help them stop incurring new unsecured debt. You're not alone. Visit HelpForDebtors.org. That's HelpForDebtors.org. If I could be you. And you could be me. For just one hour. If you could find a way. To get inside. Each other's mind. Walk a mile in my shoes. Walk a mile in my shoes. Walk a mile in my shoes. We've all felt left out. And for some, that feeling lasts more than a moment. We can change that. Learn how at belongingbeginswithus.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Walk a mile in my shoes. As many as one in eight Missourians face food insecurity every day. And among children, the numbers are even higher. The Drive to Feed Kids Hogs for Hunger program gives Missouri pig farmers and 4-H and FFA swine exhibitors the opportunity to address hunger in their communities by committing pigs locally or at the Missouri State Fair. One pig can feed more than 500 Missourians in need. Learn how you can participate at mofarmerscare.com drive. Do you worry about how much someone drinks? Do you feel angry or depressed most of the time? Do you feel neglected or unloved? Do you feel that if the drinker loved you, she or he would stop drinking? If you answered yes to any of these questions, you are not alone. Not everyone trapped by alcohol is an alcoholic. Families and friends are suffering too. Al-Anon and Alateen can help. Call 1-866-200-0223 or visit alanon.org slash help. The United States Deputy Sheriff's Association is a national nonprofit and the largest non-governmental provider of services to law enforcement. The USDSA assists city, county, state, and federal agencies with free safety equipment donations and officer survival training along with cash donations to families of law enforcement officers who perish in the line of duty, college scholarships for the children of law enforcement, a citizen awareness program, and more. For more information on the USDSA and how you can help, visit usdeputy.org. This is Show Me Today. A professor at Missouri State University reports that women are often the caregivers for aging or ailing relatives. And these adult children also work and care for their own children. Dr. Maureen Templeman talks with Ashley Bird. The majority of caregivers, almost two-thirds of caregivers in the United States, um, caregivers for family members, are women. And as a result, they 
sort of experience these differential impacts of or you know outcomes from providing care to their family members. So um, <clears throat> you know, as the government moves towards a focus on supporting family caregivers, it's really important to to focus on women in that conversation. Um, the observations from the interview at Missouri State are mainly just um, information that's been published in, you know, nationally representative reports by, you know, the AARP, um, the Rosalind Carter Institute for um, Caregivers, uh, the National Alliance for Caregiving and things like that. And so you were discussing this uh, in, in a campus publication, and it's also obviously with your work with gerontology, something that's on your radar. Everyone's definitely getting older, and we're getting older too. I'm like, my goodness, mm -hmm. you know, I just raised my kids, and yeah. now I'm going to raise my parents <laughs> right. again. There's no break at all, <laughs> you know. And and I, I mean, I think you're right that um, it, it's really hard to be in a room where you know, nobody knows about this. Nobody has experience with this. And I also think one issue with it, you know, is that people don't even necessarily call themselves caregivers, recognize themselves as caregivers. So they may not even realize, you know, your workplace has a policy where you can do X, Y, Z if you're a caregiver, because they just see it as I'm just taking care of my mom. You know, right. I'm not a caregiver, you know, and so I think that's another part of the strategy is that it needs to be clear what caregiving means and who is a caregiver. Some of the points that you've made are that it it, it disproportionately impacts women, that women mm -hmm. in, in general, but we're also seeing in, let's say, my age group between 40 and 60, that all of us are are having to take care of aging parents. It seems so many of us are, maybe even more than ever before, because of the lifespan mm -hmm. of folks, um, mm -hmm. because of better health. I mean, that's that's an observation, a non-scientific observation I've made based on all of my friends and family. So we are seeing right. a growth of, of taking care of our elderly parents. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, caregiving, you know, it truly is, I think it's fair to rely sometimes on observation because so many of us are impacted by it. It really is sort of almost a universal experience. Um, and yes, it is because the older adult population is growing at an unprecedented rate. And um, it does, it does impact mostly, you know, middle-aged um, people who are caring for their parents. And then in addition, there are older adults who are caring for their spouses. And that more often is women because women live longer than men. And so they're usually providing care for their, you know, if they're married to a man, they're providing care to their spouses, you know, as opposed to the reverse. Um, it's more common for women to provide care to their spouse when they're older. And then, of course, you know, people who are middle-aged may also be providing care to a child as well. Um, and so because care often falls on women, um, they sort of experience this role strain of providing care to their children, often working outside of the home, and then providing care to their parents as well, all at the same time. 
That's what you said in your article, and I do want to remind our folks they're listening to Show Me Today, and we're talking to Dr. Maureen Templeman, who is professor of gerontology at Missouri State University. Um, we're talking about the role of women in caregiving, uh, especially for older uh, older adults and, and parents. You mentioned that there's it's an unrecognized value that women are mm-hmm. underappreciated and overused. Tell me about that and some of the impacts that you've mentioned. I think I I believe, you know, it's sort of a, a personal opinion that they're underappreciated and overused, but it's also based on the the fact that, so as I mentioned, you know, women are providing more care than men. About two-thirds of caregivers are women. And even more than that are caregivers um, of people who have, even more women are caregivers of people who have dementia, which is um, sort of a high-intensity kind of care that's more likely to um, result in caregiver burden, care, you know, strain, um, more time spent providing care. Um, And so it's estimated that the the economic value of caregivers in the U.S. is about $600 billion a year. And so if women are, let's say, even 60% of that, then that's $360 billion a year, which means that it's about $15,000 a year that a woman provides in unpaid care. And so I think, you know, and, and a lot of times there's no support. So, for example, they may not be able to take paid leave at work. They may not have access to paid leave either due to the fact that they work for, you know, maybe a smaller company that doesn't provide that or because they're not working full-time, you know, maybe they're, they're working part-time. And so they don't have access to that kind of uh, benefit. It's just sort of result. It's kind of this cascade where women are providing all of this care. And then as they get older, they don't have the same, you know, financial footing that they might have if they didn't have maybe fractured, um, work histories because of the care that they've provided. Um, they might not have as much retirement or savings because of the care that they've provided. So it's not just a, you know, a real-time issue. It's a future issue as well. Right. Dr. Templeman, you're talking about a long-term impact um, on women right. uh, in doing this. Um, what are some of the solutions as you're studying in, in gerontology and studying this? Um, what are some of the solutions mm-hmm. you suggest? And one of my questions connected to that, I've seen quite a few people actually move, relocate to take care of their parents or to take care of, of mm-hmm. yeah, and actually work remotely. Or, and, and is that something that has happened that has helped? Absolutely. Yes. So, Probably some of the most useful workplace benefits that a person can have would be either access to paid leave, flexible scheduling available to them, or like you said, having a remote work option so that, you know, as a result, they have more flexibility. Um, Women are less likely to have as many workplace benefits as men. So men are um, much more likely to have you know, five or more workplace benefits than women. And so a lot of times they have more, a little bit more flexibility um, than women do. And that's even actually more true when they are college educated, that women, you know, have just fewer, less access to these benefits. So that's definitely one route 
in terms of solutions. Another route that's also related to the workplace is having a supportive supervisor. It's actually, you know, the way that your supervisor, you know, the comfort that you have disclosing caregiver to caregiving to your supervisor and then the reaction of your supervisor is a really important piece to this. And so having trainings for supervisors where they learn more about caregiving, how important it is, and how to support people when they are providing care would be really influential as well. And then, you know, outside of the workplace, you know, national policies that are maybe financial in nature. So, you know, something like being paid for providing care or having an income tax credit, um, things like that would be also very useful Um, And women tend to be more supportive or report that they would find those policies to be more helpful than men. So that sort of highlights the fact that, you know, they they feel like they need them more. Uh, Dr. Templeman, we we talked about this as a solution. Is is this the the still the effects of of women entering the workforce in, in larger numbers in the 60s, 70s, 80s? Uh, Why are women saddled with this more than men? Mm-hmm. It is. I think it's a combination of things, but I think a big part of it is that, you know, because of sort of these outdated views um, that women are responsible for care and that they're going to be at home and available for care more, we just haven't let go of those. And so um, it's just expected. It's just more expected, you know, socially of women to provide the care. And, you know, as a result, Um, women are not recognized that much for providing care because it's expected they don't receive recognition for it. Whereas men who provide care do tend to receive a bit more recognition, you know, and kind of congratulations for such a a job well done um, that women just don't experience. And so, um, you know, that's, that's the type of thing that can kind of work against your psyche a little bit if, um, you know, you you keep doing this sort of thankless job. And of course, they're doing it because they love their family member. But when it detracts in other ways, you know, from their life, just having that recognition is important. Thank you, Dr. Templeman, for being with us on Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. Show me today.